this morning, our scripture for meditation is going to be a responsive read <clears throat> taken from Psalm 148, and that'll be page 840 in your Trinity. <coughs> when you come to that, please stand with us. <coughs> Before we begin our read, I'd like to deviate once again um, and ask Doug Clayton if you would lead us in opening prayer. Thank you, brother. Psalm 148, let's begin. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord from the heavens. Praise Him in the heights above. Praise Him. All His angels praise Him. All His heavenly hosts. Praise Him, sun and moon. Praise Him, all ye shining stars. Praise Him. You highest heavens and you waters above the skies. Let them praise the name of the Lord. Bring them in He set them in place forever and ever. He gave a decree that will never pass away. Praise the Lord from the earth, you great sea creatures and all ocean depths. Lightning and hail, snow and clouds, storm and wind. You mountains and all hills, fruit trees and all cedars, wild animals and all cattle, small creatures and fine birds, kings of the earth and all nations, you princes and all rulers on earth, young men and maidens, old men and children. Let them praise the name of the Lord, for his name alone is exalted. His splendor is above the earth. 
He has raised up for his people a horn, the praise of all his saints of Israel, the people close to his heart. Praise Praise the Lord. Thank you. Deviating again, today is a day of deviations, uh, a little a little bit of business today. Um, it's your birthday. We have to celebrate that. Jared, hit it, brother. <laughs> Happy birthday. Could I ask you to stand, please, and turn to 173 in the red, Trinity, 173.
So 67 in the brown. Do you have a reason for this one this morning? I love this song. So does David. Our scripture reading for this morning is taken from the book of Hebrews, chapter 1. 
When you come to that, please stand with us. Hebrews chapter 1. In the past, God spoke to our forefathers through the prophets at many times and in various ways. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, who he appointed heir of all things, and through whom he made the universe. The Son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. After he He had provided purification for sins. He sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. So he became as much superior to the angels as the name he has inherited is superior to theirs. For to which of the angels did God ever say, You are my son, today I have become your father. Or again, I will be his father and he will be my son. And again, then God brings his firstborn into the world. He says, Let all God's angels worship him. And speaking of the angels, he says, He makes his angels winds, his servants flames of fire. But about the sun, he says, Your throne, O God, will last forever and ever, and righteousness will be the scepter of your kingdom. For you have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore God, your God, has set above your companions by anointing you with the oil of joy. He also says, In the beginning, O Lord, you laid the foundations of the earth, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you will remain. They will all wear out like a garment. You will roll them up like a robe. Like a garment, they will be changed. But you remain the same, and your years will never end. To which of the angels did God ever say, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? Are not all angels ministering spirits? set to serve those who will inherit salvation. May the Lord bless the reading of his word. Would you take your red hymnal again and turn to number 500? 500 in the red. Nope, I'm sorry. It's 650. I, I got ahead of myself. 650, excuse me. That's the right one.
<clears throat> well, good morning to you. It's good to be here with you this morning. Thankful every day that I am here. Not just in the church, but here presently. Um, I didn't know when I would be called upon to, to stand and preach again, and quite frankly, I'm not 100% yet. I am still uh, recovering. But I was reminded this morning uh, of a passage which I'm going to read to you even before I begin the sermon. Uh, Philippians 4.10 and following, I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at length you have re- revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but had no opportunity. Not that I am speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know now to be how to be brought low, and I know how to abound in any and every circumstance. I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Yet it was kind of you to share my trouble. <clears throat> I covet your prayers this morning. Um, mental fog still plagues me pretty hard, and I don't have much stamina. But I fully believe in the verses I just read to you. There's not a thing that we do without the strength of Christ. And by his provision, I'm standing in front of you today. So there must be a purpose for it. Before we begin, let's have a word of prayer. Father in heaven, thank you for your gracious provision in our lives. Thank you for the works that you have prepared for us before creation, things that we are to do. Lord, we thank you for the fact also that at some day, those works will be completed and you will call us home where we will have rest. But until that time, Lord, thank you for purpose that we have here on earth. Thank you for Jesus Christ, who we're going to talk about, of course, this morning. Thank you for unity of the, the Trinity, Lord, and for working together to show us how we should operate as well. We ask, Lord, you would bless our time and your word, bless the message, but bless only your word, Lord. Open our hearts to hear the truth, and then, Lord, change us because of it. Mold us into the image of Jesus Christ. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. This morning is the price of unity. In American society, we value our independence and privacy greatly. Internet companies must abide by strict guidelines concerning the releasing of personal information. Mailing lists are kept confidential, and the door-to-door salesman is no longer welcome. Should anyone forget these rules of privacy, we become instantly irate. Our privacy comfort level has become the benchmark for how we operate both in relating to someone and being related to. We have become a society of private hermits where no one intrudes on another person's privacy and we are content to let serious problems merely continue unchecked or corrected simply because we see them as none of our business. Sadly, brethren, this mentality has permeated the local church as it has permeated the rest of our society. Instead of a group of tight-knit people defined by what they are collectively, we have become a gathering of individuals that meet because we share a common interest. 
Should we find that in the course of time, some of us do not share the same common interest, we can and will easily separate from the rest with little or no consequence in our personal lives. Now, is this how Christ designed his church? Did he design and desire us to have no impact on the personal lives of the other believers in our church? Did Christ want us to be forever individuals that work together when and only when the work was in our own interest? Are we unified as a church as God has designed us to be? And I believe that true biblical unity is not being practiced in churches of our country today. I believe that we have wandered from the concept of unity because we do not appreciate the value and the cost of unity. And we do not like its intrusion into our lives. Unity demands intimacy. We do not like intimacy on hardly any level, and it takes us years to become emotionally intimate with our spouses. If we can't be intimate easily with them, how can we become intimate with any other person to whom we are not as closely associated with, like our spouse? I want us this morning to look into the subject of unity to find out what causes us to be shy and and cause us to shy away from it what its purpose might be, and most importantly, what God desires us to do about unity or our lack of it. The first thing I want us to look at this morning is the Trinity. It is the perfect idea of unity defined. To rightly understand the concept of what unity is, we must go to the source of all good things. God as the Trinity, is the perfect example of what true unity is. As we examine this remarkable relationship, let us be mindful of how we might improve the unity in our own relationships. Concerning his relationship with God the Father, God the Son said in John 10, verses 30, 37, and 38, I and the Father are one. Do not believe me unless I do what my Father does. But if I do it, even though you do not believe me, believe the miracles that you may know and understand that the Father is in me and I in the Father. By the wording in verse 38, we must understand that when Christ says the Father is in me and I in the Father, he is not talking about a physical location that somehow God the Father is located in the physical body of Christ, but rather Christ and his Father are one or the same, in essence and nature. So that if you were able to analyze the complete makeup of both Jesus Christ and God the Father, you would find no differences. They are separate in roles and being, but at the same time, exactly the same in essence. They share all of the qualities of God's omniscience, omnipotence, eternality, etc. Yet they are distinct persons. God the Father is not God the Son, and vice versa. Yet even as they are separate in persons, they are God singular. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Deuteronomy 6.4 The self-declaration of God the Father to Moses as to who he was in Exodus 3.14 says, 
I am who I am. This is what you are to say to the Israelites, I am has sent me to you. And later in time, as the Jews of his day were questioning Jesus as to his authority and origins, Jesus replied in John 8, 58, I tell you the truth, Jesus answered, before Abraham was born, I am. And the Jews understood exactly what he was saying and rushed to stone him for it. Christ was saying that there was no difference in essence between the I am that delivered Israel from the clutches of Pharaoh so many generations before and he, the deliverer of the new Israel. He identified himself with God as being the same as God. And thus, he was God. Concerning God the Holy Spirit, in 1 John 5, verses 6 through 8, we read, This is the one who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ. He did not come by water only, but by water and blood. And it is the Spirit who testifies, because the Spirit is the truth. For these are three that testify, the Spirit, the water, and the blood. And the three are in agreement. And here we can see that both the Holy Spirit and Christ are in agreement. They are unified in purpose. Therefore, we must then conclude that if the Holy Spirit and Christ are unified, and if Christ and God the Father are unified, then the Holy Spirit and God the Father are also unified, thus completing the Trinity in complete, perfect unity. We see other evidence of this unified and economical trinity in the creation account. If you want to, turn to the very first page of your Bible, Genesis 1 and 2. I know you know this passage well. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. And God said, Let there be light, and there was light. And in the Gospel of John, we see that Christ was the word that was spoken. John 1, 1 through 3 reads, In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. Before God, if there is such a thing, nothing has ever existed. So the fact that all three of the Trinity were existent before the moment of creation means that none of them were created by the other. Besides, every creature that God has made has been far below his perfection and glory. No creature that is a being created by another has ever possessed the exact nature of its creator. God has existed as the total and complete triune God. And God will forever exist in this capacity, three distinct roles, one God. And to a great extent, brethren, we cannot comprehend this idea of one God, separate persons. We, as human beings, are distinctly different than anyone else around us. Our fingerprints alone can identify us and separate us from any other person. And even identical twins which through the analysis of their DNA cannot be distinguished from each other, have different fingerprints. We are all different than every other living or deceased human being. God has made us special 
and unique. And because of this, our relationships differ greatly from God. Oftentimes in our relationships, one person compliments the other. Where one person is deficient, the other is able. However, brethren, there are no deficiencies in perfection. All of God is perfect. There are no inadequacies of one person of the Godhead for which the other two persons of the Trinity compensate. The unity of God is not one built on dependency. Rather, the unity of God comes from the fact that the three persons of the Trinity are solely unique. They are the only being that possess this characteristics that define God. And you think about the characteristics of the holy God. If God is the sole omnipotent being, and no other being can be omnipotent, then together each person of the Trinity as God is omnipotent. All three possess all the characteristics that constitute God, and by so possessing, they are unified in a way that we cannot be. There is never a moment when miscommunication occurs. Each person of the Trinity is omniscient, and completely understands the goals to which they have committed themselves. There is never a moment of mistrust or failure within the Godhead. There is intimacy in all of their actions and thoughts. And we cannot experience this kind of complete unity. Even in our best relationships, where we may dare to claim we have unity, we fall far from the unity which God possesses and displays in the wonderment of the Trinity. The model of the triune God is our biblical example as to what unity is. And I must point out that the term unity does not define God, but rather it is God that defines unity. All truth originates from and is disseminated by God. It is from this truth about God that we must look to define any and all of our spiritual relationships. I would suggest to you three areas of unity that we must, as children of the triune God, develop, cultivate, and maintain. The first of which is unity between Savior and Saint. Before we can discuss any other relationship and the unity or lack thereof within that relationship, we must examine the primary relationship for mankind. That primary relationship is our relationship and union with Christ our Lord and Savior. Man has long struggled with the idea of how to please God so that the relationship between God and themselves would change from being under God's wrath to one of being at peace with God. This beginning relationship is really no relationship at all. To be under the crushing judgment of God cannot be called a relationship. And if there is no relationship, there cannot be any unity. Man has tried many ways not prescribed by God to accomplish peace with God, and all have been to no avail. The underlying problem that destroys any possible relationship with God is our sin. Sin is open rebellion against God. Sin is anti-God. The holy God of the universe cannot be unified with sin. Therefore, to be in a relationship with God, to be unified with God, 
requires us to be sinless, a feat that we cannot accomplish by ourselves. Therefore, we are hopeless to ever have peace and unity with God on our own. Dark is the stain that we cannot hide. What can avail to wash it away? God, however, was not content to let his, us remain estranged from him. God, in total and absolute unity of purpose, sent God the Son to redeem his children and bring them into a right relationship with himself. And by becoming the sin-bearer, Christ removed forever our sins so that there was no longer any barrier for a relationship between creature and creator. Of Christ's atoning work, the Bible says in Romans 4, But also for us to whom God will credit righteousness, for us who believe in him who raised Jesus our Lord from the dead, he was delivered over to death for our sins and was raised to life for our justification. Therefore, since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have gained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand. And we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Thus, for every Christian, this relationship was initiated and secured with God by God. And to this relationship, we owe complete dedication and attention. It is unity with Christ that must be our first step in achieving unity in any other relationship. If our relationship with Christ is lacking, if there is no union with Christ, then there cannot be any meaningful unity with any other being. That's how important this is. Our union with Christ still is not like the union between the Trinity. Rather, our unity is based on dependency. Concerning our relationship with Christ, the Bible says in John 15, 4 through 8, Remain in me, and I will remain in you. No branch can bear fruit by itself. It must remain in the vine. Neither can you bear fruit unless you remain in me. I am the vine. You are the branches. If a man remains in me, and I in him, he will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not remain in me, he is like a branch that is thrown away and withers. Such branches are picked up, thrown into the fire, and burned. If you remain in me, and my words remain in you, ask whatever you wish, and it will be given you. This is to my Father's glory that you bear much fruit, showing yourselves to be my disciples. Again, there is the idea of being in Christ and Christ in us, as when Christ was speaking of his own unity with God the Father. It is when our attachment to Christ is secure that we bear spiritual fruit. When we are detached, we are worthless and dead. In order to have life, we must be in union with Christ. We are dependent on him, not only for his redemptive work to bring us into a right relationship with God, but also for our continuing life that keeps in unity with him. It is this primary relationship that defines any other relationship we have. 
having problems in your marriage? How is your relationship with Jesus Christ? Are there tensions between you and another brother or sister in the Lord? Well, how is your relationship with Jesus Christ? If this primary relationship and union with Christ is neglected, every one of our other relationships will suffer. Now, why is that? The natural, sinful, and prideful human is not capable of sustaining an intimate, unified relationship other than a completely sinful one. And even the unions joined by sin eventually fail. True unity is a characteristic of God, not man. So to have true union on any level with any being, we must remain in God, and God must be in us. It is Christ who provides the connection for unity in any relationship. If he is not present, or if we have neglected our union with him, we no longer are capable of union with others. And as we read earlier in John 15, verse 5, apart from me, you can do nothing. Oftentimes, we become distracted. We become so involved with the other less important relationships we have with other people, including our spouse, whom we cherish, to the point that we may forget why we have a relationship with these people. All the while, the reason for our relationships with others, Christ, waits for us to return to him and to give to him what is due. Concerning his place in our lives, Christ said, Anyone who loves his father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. Anyone who loves his son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. Matthew 10, verse 37. And to this list, we may add any other relationship that pulls our affections away from our Lord and Savior. Our relationship with Christ is not one of convenience. It is not one that is trivial, expressed only in formality. Rather, our union with Christ is the most intimate one available to humankind. Our Lord, our Savior, our lover, in the truest sense of the word, gave his life for us. He gave up his unimaginable glory, his position as Prince of Heaven, and his immortality for worthless sinners like you and me. The perfect, holy, and immortal God becomes sin and dies to bring justification and peace to his very own creations who deserve nothing less than complete obliteration for their rebellion. Tell me now. Who has ever done something of this magnitude for someone else? For you. No. Who has ever done something of this magnitude for yourself? Oh, sure. We hear of stories of people who have sacrificed their lives so others could live. And their heroism most certainly saved the physical lives of the people they were trying to save. But Christ, the hero of all heroes, has saved our eternal lives. I think the reality of this concept passes us by as if it was a commonplace occurrence for Christ to come and do this. No one before had ever given up so much, and never again will such an exchange happen. The sacrifice was all his. We brought nothing to this relationship. Punishment for our sin was required to have a relationship with holy Jehovah. 
punishment that brought about death, and Christ was both willing and able. Is this not someone who deserves your love and affection? Does not his sacrifice cause your heart to soften to him and call for a deeper union with this lover of your soul? Oh, that God would forgive us for our wicked neglect of Jesus Christ. Let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Hebrews 12, verse 2. And let us not, as the people of God in Ephesus did, forsake our first love. The second area of human unity comes within the context of marriage. And there should be no closer relationship between earthly beings than that which is between a husband and a wife. We know the story of Adam and Eve so well, we can almost quote the text, but if you'd like, turn to Genesis 2. We'll start in verse 18. The Lord God said, It is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. Now the Lord God had formed out of the ground all of the beasts of the field and all the birds of the air. He brought them to the man to see what he would name them. And whenever the man called each living creature, that was its name. And so the man gave names to all the livestock, the birds of the air and all the beasts of the field. But for Adam, no suitable helper was found. So the Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep. And while he was sleeping, he took one of the man's ribs and closed up the place with flesh. Then the Lord God made a woman from the rib that he had taken out of the man, and he brought her to the man. And the man said, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife and they will become one flesh. When God created Adam, he created him alone. All of the other animals had counterparts, but Adam was special. He was a Deo, or the image of God. However, when God had finished with his creation of all things, he pronounced that Adam, as he was, that is, being alone, was not good. And as all the animals passed before him, what was already apparent to God became so too apparent to Adam as well. There was no suitable helper for him. And as Adam slept, not giving any input to God on what he thought he needed or might have wanted, God masterfully created Eve from part of Adam. Don't miss the significance of the creation of Eve. Apart from Adam, who was made from the dust of the earth, all other creatures God made from nothing. There was nothing. God spoke. Spontaneous creation occurred. However, with Eve, she is made from the already existing and living material of another creature, namely Adam. God could have easily spoken Eve into existence. He, but he chose to teach Adam and us a lesson about the significance of this helper. Adam and Eve were of the same physical material. 
In reality, Eve completed Adam. They were of one essence, patterned after the loving God who created them. Adam's own words bring this into sharp clarity. In verse 23, the man said, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man. Adam understood the significance of Eve. He quickly identified that they shared a unity unlike any other creature could hope to produce. They were of one essence, yet separate persons, patterned after the triune God. This was unique to Adam and Eve. For if sin had never entered the world, all subsequent humans, male and female, would have been produced in the same normal reproductive way. Ever since this first arranged marriage, humans have sought to find another human to complete him or herself. For this reason, says verse 24 of our text, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and they will become one flesh. To grow up and spend the first 18 or so years of your life under the watchful and loving care of your parents, to not know any stronger human love than that was given by parents, and to leave all of this on what might be viewed as a gamble that you would find a stronger love from a person you had not known from birth, this leaving and cleaving would be to the casual observer an abandonment of reason if it wasn't such a strong and universal truth. By acting on this, God designed need that is in us to find a helper. We give great testimony, greater testimony than the word to God's pronouncement that man should not be alone. We must understand that the first human relationship was not parent-child, but rather husband-wife. Long before children, the marriage was, and long after children have departed the home, the marriage will be. Your first responsibility on earth is to be devoted to your spouse. As important as child-rearing is, the needs of your spouse must come first. In the marriage vows, we promise to forsake all others. This forsaking of all others includes our children. Many a union has been strained or broken by the sinful placing of children as the primary relationship over the relationship with their spouse. As with Isaac and Rebecca, as they promoted their own favorite son over the other, vindictive and subversive tactics will destroy the union between husband and wife until all that remains is the shell of a marriage. The life and union long since drained by years of manipulation and neglect. The goal of every Christian marriage should be the raising of godly children that desire to have what mom and dad have, a healthy union that exists with or without them as a child. And if you want the best for your child, demonstrate your love for your spouse in your child's presence. As living portraits of who Christ is, practice being one with your spouse. For unity is a characteristic of godliness. The concept of becoming one flesh easily points to the union that exists in the persons of the Trinity and also explains why God hates adultery. Truly, God sees the marriage between two people as the inception of a new being, they are no longer two, but one in God's eyes. The spiritual and physical union between husband and wife 
allows each person to know more deeply, more intimately, the complexities of their spouse. They know more about that person than even their spouse's parents know. It is safe to say that we know each other more deeply than any other person in our lives. This intimacy or unity is reserved for them alone. No one else is is welcome to experience this form of unity between these two people. This bond increases as time progresses. And as each person grows in his or her relationship to Jesus Christ, the bond between husband and wife grows stronger. The union we experience in marriage was designed to allow us to experience in a very small way what God experiences in the Trinity. To break this unity by adultery or by divorce is an insult to God. Concerning adultery, the same text from Genesis describing a healthy relationship is quoted as the Apostle Paul exhorts the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 6, verse 16 and following, Do you not know that he who unites himself with a prostitute is one in her, with her in body? For it is said, the two will become one flesh. So instead of a unity between two people, in essence, when adultery happens, all unity is broken. And this is the very reason why infidelity is grounds for divorce. Contrary to some people's beliefs, Physical relations are very important to God. They are very important to unity in the marriage relationship. Physical union, when in the context of a Christian marriage, is an outward sign that a spiritual union exists. Sin in the lives of a Christian couple can easily lead to a disruption in their personal unity with Christ. Think about Adam and Eve again. Before any children came from this union, sin entered. And as soon as the forbidden fruit had crossed their lips, there is a break of unity. Genesis 2, verse 12. The man said, The woman you put here with me, she gave me some fruit from the tree, and I ate it. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this that you have done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. Sin enters, and right away, Adam blames his wife for his own sin. Immediately, there is a break in the unity. Furthermore, God's curse on Eve and all of her daughters included that her desire would be for her husband and he would rule over her. Genesis 2, verse 16. The perfect union that Adam and Eve had once experienced was now forever tainted by sin. When sin enters a marriage true union cannot exist. In fact, when we tolerate sin in our marriages, God is not pleased, and we reap personal judgment from him. Listen to 1 Peter 3, 7. Husbands, in the same way, be considerate as you live with your wives and treat them with respect as the weaker partner and as heirs with you of the gracious gift of life so that nothing will hinder your prayers. You know, the idea brought is that if we as husbands choose not to do what this passage has said, God will not honor our prayer life. Our marriages are the building blocks of the Christian community. And we need to be about improving the unity that we have in our marriages. None of us can honestly say that we enjoy complete and perfect unity with our spouses. 
So why have we stopped trying to improve our relationship with them? Have we come to a comfortable place in our relationship that we feel that we are intimate enough? One of the joys of marriage must be that throughout all of the years of togetherness, we continue to learn more and more about that other person to whom we pledge solemn fidelity before God. As our individual relationships with Christ grow, so does our marriage relationship. And as our marriage relationships become stronger, so our church becomes stronger, which brings us to our next point. There must be unity within the context of the local church. The Bible deals greatly with unity among the believing community. If unity is a godly trait, then God's people must also demonstrate unity in all spiritual aspects of their life. Psalm 133, a song of ascents of David. How good and pleasant it is when brothers live together in unity. It is like precious oil poured on the head, running down on the beard, running down on Aaron's beard, down upon the collar of his robes. It is, at, it is as if the dew of Hermon were falling on Mount Zion, for there the Lord bestows his blessing, even life forevermore. Here the psalmist spends only three verses on the topic, yet they say multitudes. David compares the unity of the believing community to an anointment or consecration to God. The consecration of Aaron, the first priest, is likened to God's blessing. Furthermore, he states just that in verse 3. Unity among the believers is a blessing from God. And also where there is unity, God sends his blessing on his people. I wonder, do we as a church view our unity as a gift from God? Do we see unity as something that pleases God and that he will bless us for actively pursuing? Christ has prayed to the Father concerning the unity of his people. And by analyzing his prayer, we will find out what amount of importance our Lord Jesus Christ has placed on unity between his people. John 17, 20, verse 20 through 23. My prayer is not for them alone. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message, that all of them may be one. Father, just as you are in me and I in you, may they also be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. I have given them the glory that you gave me, that they may be one as we are one, I in them and you in me. May they be brought to complete unity, to let the world know that you sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. Again, we see the concept of unity displayed as Christ uses the analogy of being in the Father and the Father in him. And to our wonder and amazement, Christ has asked the Father that we be included in this unity. By our unity, we'll be, we will bring validity to the message of Jesus Christ. Now, why will that happen? Because this type of unity cannot be accomplished without the divine intervention of God. Furthermore, the pagan world will realize that this unity is of God. And how will this unity be accomplished? Firstly, if Christ has prayed for us to be unified, then we will be unified. Secondly, he has given us directives for cultivating godly unity. 
Ephesians 4, verse 2. Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to one hope when you were called. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. To some extent, we as Christians already possess a great deal of unity. There is one body of believers that we belong to. There is one Spirit who teaches and guides us. There is one hope we hold to. There is but one Lord to whom we answer. And there is only one faith, one baptism, and lastly, we have one God who is our Father. Through all of this, we find that we have a lot in common with each other. However, this alone does not promote unity, but rather expresses the urgency for unity within the church. We are encouraged in this text to be humble, gentle, and to be patient with one another so that unity may increase. Listen to Paul's words uh, to the Philippians. In chapter 2 it reads, If you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from His love, if any fellowship with the Spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded having the same love, being one in spirit and purpose. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility consider others better than yourselves. Each of you should look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus, who, being in the very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. Philippians 2, the first seven verses. Firstly, we need to be like-minded, having the same love and having the same purpose. How can we make sure that we are doing all this? I mean, aren't we all in different, unique individuals? It is true that we are unique and different. However, we all should have one set of common goals, and, our, and, and all of our goals should be from what God has said our goals should be. Aren't we all saved sinners? And if so, then we should be moving towards being uh, completely sanctified, to being like Jesus Christ. If we all look and act as Christ would, then we will be truly like-minded, having the same love and united in one purpose. Secondly, we must also adopt the attitude of the servant. Again, by doing so, we follow the example set by our Lord. And most people point to the washing of the disciples' feet, but this passage calls our attention to a grander act of service. Christ, the Lord of glory, humbled himself to the point of appearing as one of his own creations. And finding himself in this situation, he did not assert his awesome power and glory, but rather he humbled himself and became obedient unto death on a cross. If Christ is our example, then we too, 
who are not God and not glorious by any stretch of the imagination must renounce our monstrous pride and humble ourselves as to be obedient as Christ was to his Father. This idea of humility in the church has become a farce. Instead of adopting a true stance of humility and service, we portray a facade of piousness and are easily offended if our selfless acts of service go unrecognized. Brethren, this is not humility. Rather, it is Pharisaism. If we want to see true unity in our church, we must all remember that we are nothing in the eyes of God but worthless sinners, called and redeemed by his own work, not of our own. With this attitude adjustment, we may finally begin to see each other in a different light. And although we are worthless, non-contributing sinners, we are also the objects of God's wondrous grace. Furthermore, we need to see each other as precious in the sight of God. And just how do we view one another? In 1 Corinthians 8, we are given a scenario that should be our model for relating to our brothers and sisters in the Lord. There it reads, For if anyone with a weak conscience sees you who have this knowledge eating in an idol's temple, won't he be emboldened to eat what has been sacrificed to idols? So this weak brother, for whom Christ died, is destroyed by your knowledge. When you sin against your brothers in this way and wound their weak conscience, you sin against Christ. Therefore, if what I eat causes my brother to fall into sin, I will never eat meat again, so that I will not cause him to fall. 1 Corinthians 8, 10 through 13. How are we doing on that kind of sacrifice? Where you would give up something for your entire life because it might cause your brother to fall. Notice the language that's used in verse 11. So this weak brother for whom Christ died is destroyed by your knowledge. The reminder here is that this person is one whom Jesus loves. Jesus has loved this person to the point of death. And if Christ, who is also the lover of your soul, loves him, then you should be anxious to demonstrate your love for Christ by loving this brother. Why is unity within the church such a great thing that God wants us to attain? Well, firstly, we are to be a functioning body of believers. No body functions when the parts are not in unity of purpose. If not every part of the body was committed to self-preservation, the body may become dysfunctional and even die. Secondly, we, the functioning body of believers, are the bride of Christ. And we must be a fully functioning bride at that. A reminder, Ephesians 5.25, Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word, and to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. Not only do we experience unity with Christ on a personal level, we are also in communion with him as his church or bride. 
the roles outlined for us in marriage come into play again as we function in the church. Christ is our head, as husbands are the heads of their wives. So then, it is our responsibility to make sure we present ourselves, Thornville Baptist Church, as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. And we do this by first being in union with Christ, personally, in union with our spouses, in union with each other, and finally, in union with Christ as husband of this church. Now, what are we to do with this idea of unity? Well, first of all, we must realize that there is a cost for unity. There is a price that must pay if unity is what you desire. The cost of unity in all three areas is your very being. Concerning your relationship with Christ, the Bible says that we must deny ourselves, take up our cross daily, and follow Christ. Luke 9, verse 23. As he was describing his personal relationship with Christ, the Apostle Paul states, For me, for to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. Philippians 1 verse 21. You want to live and have unity with Christ? Then get busy dying. When Christ comes into the life of a person, the old nature, that is to say, that person is dealt the death blow. God cannot abide with sin. How can a holy God be unified with unholy people? Are you letting the old nature and its selfish, sinful habits die? Or are you trying your best to nurse it along for as long as it gasps for air? Let sin die. As sin is passing away, unity increases. And as we have seen, if our relationship with Christ is strengthened, all of our relationships are strengthened. You want to love your spouse more? To have more unity in your marriage, love Christ first and love him the best. You want to have unity here at this church, unity that any unbeliever would express is supernatural and only from God, love Christ first and love him best. Secondly, in our marriages, we must learn to address the needs of our spouses. Why? Because unity in the marriages of our members will bring about unity in the life of this church. How can we possibly hope to have Christian unity with other brothers and sisters in the Lord if we cannot maintain a high level of unity at home with our Christian spouse? You just can't. And if we want to see our church flourish and grow in the ties of unity, love your spouse as you should. Husbands, the call rings out to us from Scripture, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Ephesians 5.25 A few verses later, Paul states in, in verses 28 and 29, in this same way, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. After all, no one ever hated his own body, but he feeds and cares for it, just as Christ does the church. Well, how is our sacrificial love going, men? Have we really loved our wives in the way that Christ has loved us? How many times have we placed our own desires over the desires or even the needs of our wives? When was the last time you consciously sacrificed yourself for your wife? 
Many of us might quickly say, well, I would die for my wife, just as Christ died for the church. And to that I would say how convenient that most of us, if not all of us, will never have the opportunity to prove whether that was true or we were just plain liars. Men, we must find a way that demonstrates our sacrificial love here and now before a life or death situation arises. Christ was proactive in the demonstration of his love and as modelers of his behavior we should do. Wives, in the same regard, I believe what is commanded of you is even harder. To the women, Paul, under inspiration of the Holy Spirit, writes, Wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church, his body of which he is the Savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands in everything. Ephesians 5, 22-24. Ladies, do you submit to your husbands as you would as if the Lord of glory was standing before you? Do you believe in God's design that the husband is to be the head of the marriage as Christ is the head of the church? Or do you think that your marriage would be so much better if you had the final say in matters? If you believe this, then you are not being submissive as the church is to Christ. Does your husband know, not just feel, that he has your complete support. Do you actively submit to him or constantly raise issues that undermine his thinking to get your own way? You know, there is no manipulation by the church to get Christ to do their own bidding. We, the church, submit in all matters to Christ. Why? Because he is our head. We do not undermine his authority feel resentful concerning his decisions for us, or wish that we were in charge of him for once. For both husband and wife, these roles become easier as both parties draw closer to Christ. As we draw closer to him, we find that his commands are not burdensome. Furthermore, husbands, as we love our wives sacrificially, our wives will find it easier to submit. And wives, as you lovingly submit to your husbands, they will find it easier to love you sacrificially. Brethren, if you want unity in your marriage, change must happen. Someone has to start the process. If both parties have been remiss in your God-given duties and roles, start today. Lastly, we must take a long and hard look at what passes as unity in our church. Are we a congregation of unified believers? Or are we a collection of Christians who come regularly for meetings? How well do you know the people in these pews? Have you made an attempt to get to know the other redeemed sinners in our congregation? And have you put up barriers that have kept other Christians from uniting with you in spirit? How can we be unified with complete strangers? How can we be unified with casual acquaintances? The price of unity includes our desire to maintain our personal space, as glorified as it may be in our society. God has not called us to a life of secrecy and privacy. As a Christian, our lives are exposed. We are happy as new Christians that God has eradicated our sin. 
New Christians are more hap- more than happy to tell you what nasty, dark, and wicked deeds they used to be involved in because now they are free. Well, what happened to us? Do we become self-righteous and believe that by this time in our lives we ought to be free from all sin? Brethren, sin will plague us until we die and are made completely holy. So let's stop pretending that we have already achieved this in our lives. Secrecy destroys unity. Adam and Eve, following their disobedience, hid from God. The unity that existed between them and God was shattered. There is no unity when we hide from each other. Intimacy brings about unity. Be open and ready to be a servant to your fellow soldiers. Change must happen. If we were completely sanctified, no change would be necessary. Be proactive in bringing change to this congregation. For those of you who do not know Christ as Lord and Savior, and have sat here today wondering what all this talk of unity is about, your primary problem is that you were lost, and no word could better describe your position. You are lost in the sense that you have no idea where you are going. You wander aimlessly searching for something to fill the nagging void in your life. And no matter what you try, it never satiates. You are lost as your sin keeps you from a relationship with God. And because of this, you are lost to the point of no recovery on your own. You have never been on the right path. And furthermore, if you ever did see the right path, you wouldn't recognize it. Concerning the roads that we as humans walk upon, the Bible states, enter through the narrow gate. For wide is the gate and broad is the road that leads to destruction, and many enter through it. But small is the gate and narrow the road that leads to life, and only a few find it. Matthew 7, verses 13 and 14. If you do not know Christ, you are on the broad road, and destruction will overtake you in an instant should you die without him. The narrow road is hard to find, but the good news is God will lead you to it, and furthermore, he will keep you on it if you trust Christ as your Savior. We have analyzed unity in many ways today, and in one area we have not looked. It is unity at its its finest, As Christ, the immortal I am, the King of glory, Son of God and Son of Man, crucified upon the cursed tree of Golgotha, becomes the sin-bearer for his people. As God the Father has to look away because of the heinous and hideousness of our sin, he crushes his own Son. We watch in horror as God the Son endures the unbridled wrath of the Holy and Almighty God the wrath that we rightly deserve for our sin. And of this punishment we read in Romans 8 verse 32 that God did not spare his own son. We hear his cry, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And realize that it is our sin that has brought him such pain. This was the price. This is what it cost God to restore the unity lost in the Garden of Eden. The restoration of unity lost caused by sinful Adam had cost God the Father his own 
and precious Son. The price was paid in full in the body of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. But in the midst of grief and sorrow, we also hear our Lord say, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And when he had said this, the Bible says he breathed his last. Unified with his Father to the end. It was the unity of the triune God that brought about the complete work of salvation. For even in this dark hour, there was complete unity and purpose, plan, and deed by all the members of the Trinity. May we forever praise Father, Son, and Holy Ghost, ever three and ever one. Salvation is secure. We now again have peace with God. Unity has been restored. May we find renewed zeal in our love for God. And may we be unified with Him and with each other. Let's pray. Father, thank You for this unity that You have within the Godhead and for the plan of salvation. Thank You, Lord Jesus Christ, for coming and being our sacrifice. Lord, where we have been remiss in looking and representing Your image, I pray that You will work in our hearts. And that you, O Lord, will bring about change. Help us to be conformed to the image of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, until we are completely holy and before you. Bless our time together, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Our closing hymn is 500 in the red in the Trinity. 500 in the red. Once you found 500, will you stand with me? <clears throat> 